on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Welcome this hour to the Bible line. Maybe you are listening for the very first time, and so for the next hour, what we do here is we take questions that you can call in at 843 525 questions about God's Word, maybe a challenge you've been facing or an issue you are, are trying to wrestle with from God's perspective, from His Word as it relates to your family or ministry or local assembly, and we'll do our best to be able to respond to each question you have. And uh, you can also email us here directly into the studio. We get a lot of email address uh, questions that come in, and the email address is tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net. On occasion, people say, oh, you know, I I really want to get this question answered, but I'm at work at that time. And I'll say, well, you can email it in. And then when your question is answered, we shoot you back an email saying, hey, it was answered today, and uh, Rick puts up all the questions for that day. And you can see, oh, yeah, mine was the fourth question. You don't even have to listen to the whole Bible line. You can just kind of scan through until your question comes up. Anyway, uh, let's go ahead, Rick, and we'll jump in with both feet with God's help, and we'll get started. All right, Pastor. We had a number of questions left over from last week, and the first uh, caller would like to know, If Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, doesn't that mean that the gifts such as tongues and miracles are for today? That's a really great question. Um, You are referencing, as I'm sure you know, uh, Hebrews 13, verse 8. Let me read it. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. But again, with every text, there's a context. So let me just back it up a little bit to verse 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you in considering the result of their conduct. Imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not, (coughs) excuse me, do not be uh, carried away um, by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which uh, those who were so occupied were not benefited. So uh, we, we come really to one of the best-known verses, I suppose, in the book of Hebrews, and unfortunately maybe one of the most uh, least understood. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it's often uh, quoted and then misapplied out of its context uh, to say things like, well, when Jesus was here 2,000 years ago, he performed miracles and healed the sick, and therefore we ought to perform miracles and heal the sick. And after all, <laughs> Jesus never changes, and we need to carry on his ministry. Well, it is true that Jesus, as this verse affirms, is the same. God is immutable. He never changes. He's God in human flesh. He's always the same. 
but we need to understand how it is that he's the same. He's certainly the same in his character. He's certainly the same in all of his attributes, but not in his performance. And that's where the rubber meets the road as it relates to your question. Uh, It's clear from the Bible that he's not the same in every way. I mean, just think it through logically. There was a time when Jesus was a little baby boy in Bethlehem, but he no longer is a little baby boy in Bethlehem. Uh, Now, some people want to keep him that way, and they adore the little baby at Christmas, but they don't necessarily want him as their sovereign Lord. Uh, There was a time when he played as a young man in the streets of Nazareth. He doesn't do that anymore. There was a time when he worked in his father's, a stepfather's carpenter shop. Doesn't do that anymore. There was a time when he was crucified and hanging on a cross outside of the city. He's no longer there. So in what sense then we need to ask, does Jesus not change? Well, Again, as I just stated, he's the same in his character, he's the same in his attributes, but not in his performance, not in the things that he's necessarily doing. Now, God is immutable. We speak of the various attributes of God, and one attribute we often uh, reference is the immutability of God. Immutability just means God's the same, he doesn't change. And Malachi affirms that, I am the Lord and I change not. And so even for this affirmation that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, unchangeable, unlike fickle, fallen human beings where we are inconsistent. The Lord is always the same. He changes not. So while God doesn't change in character, uh, the way he functions in dealing with people at different times in human history changes. Uh, When God asks his people in Israel to bring an animal sacrifice and secure one, uh, for the um, the worship in the temple, he's not asking them to do that anymore. Does that mean God the Father, who describes himself there in Malachi 3, 6, is immutable, that he has changed? Of course not. And so the conclusion is, is that God's will for us as Christ's body is to be identical, and it's a wrong premise that people make. Now, again, every verse has a context And one cannot ignore verses 7 and 9 that come on either side of verse 8 as it relates to the context. So let me just review that for just a second. Verse 7 says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct. Imitate their faith. So he's commending faithful leaders in the church. And when we come to verse 9, don't be carried away by varied and strange teaching, he is condemning false teachers who could come into the church. So verse 8 is kind of a hinge verse. It looks back at verse 7, at faithful leaders, and then it looks forward to verse 9 of people who are unfaithful to the Word of God. Now, it might have been, if you know the theme of the book of Hebrews, remember these are Hebrew Christians, these are Jewish Christians, and that's not an oxymoron. Uh, to call yourself today a Jewish Christian. Because Jewishness, first and foremost, refers to an ethnicity. It refers to people who are from the bloodline of Abraham. And so I have in my bloodline, I'm told, Irish and Italian blood. When I became a Christian, that bloodline was not changed at all. I still have Irish and Italian blood in me. And Jews who embraced Jesus as the Messiah still have that Jewish bloodline. But what it meant in the book of Hebrews, of course, is that for you as a Christian, to confess Jesus as Lord meant persecution. 
and many of them were persecuted. He, he gives an admonishment in this chapter about not being in love with money. Uh, he says in verse 5, just prior to this, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Uh, again, context is everything. And these were Christians whose businesses were being abandoned. Uh, they were suffering for the name of Christ. And of course, God promises to meet our needs. And so he says, be content with the fact that your needs are being met. You've got a, a roof over your head. You have food on the table. Don't be discouraged. And so be free from the love of money. And that's a good admonition to all of us that we have the most important thing, salvation. And this is actually a triple negative in the Hebrew. Um, When I teach the doctrine of eternal security, this always is a great verse to quote, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will know not never. Uh, A triple negative is an affirmation. Uh, God is never going to leave us, period. A double negative would cancel it out. A triple negative affirms it. So, again, the writer is just reminding them that their faith is in a person who never changes. And, of course, it's possible. He says, remember, uh, consider, in verse 7, those that led you, their conduct, so forth, imitate their way of life. Uh, But Christ never changes. Uh, Men can be fallible. Men can change. Men can uh, sometimes fail you, but Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith, that he has just referenced in chapter 12, we're to keep our eyes on him. So their leaders could be um, faithful to the word of God, or they could confront false leaders who come into the church that verse 9 uh, addresses. But the living word, the Lord Jesus, he never, never changes, just like the written word that these faithful leaders taught. So put it in context. This is not some wholesale admonition that everything Jesus did and that he equipped some of his apostles to do as the church was being built is something that is true of every Christian. And there is a number of passages we could look at. Um, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, one of the four central sections in the New Testament that deals with the subject of spiritual gifts Paul describes that there's one body with many members. He said, look, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be and so forth? And then he asks a number of rhetorical questions. All won't be teachers. Well, they know, of course not. God doesn't gift everyone with the gift of teaching. All won't speak in tongues. Will they? No, of course not. God doesn't give that spiritual gift to everyone. So um, again, just letting scripture interpret scripture the uh, application that they make is really kind of wild and fanciful and not faithful to the context. That is a great question. Uh, You might be interested. uh, I've preached through the whole book of Hebrews. It's online at searchthescriptures.org, and you might want to reference that sermon where I'm sure I go into more depth. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And you can also email us at tbl at wagp.net. A listener who would like to stay anonymous but listens to us in New Hampshire says, in one of your earlier Bible Line broadcasts, you briefly spoke about your trips to Israel and explained how a Class A spot in Israel is an area where, without a doubt, unquestionably, something happened from the Bible at that very spot. And then you explained that a Class B spot is an area where, 
Likewise, something of significance happened in that general area, but the exact location may not be known. I know Golgotha and the Mount, Mount of Olives are very popular, but what are some of the other Class A and B spots that you usually visit? I've always wanted to go to Israel. Oh, you should come to Israel with us, God willing. Uh, we have a tour going September the 16th through the 26th of 2019. And if you go to searchthescriptures.org or communitybiblechurch.us, uh, you can click on the brochure. You can read the whole itinerary, all that's involved. Um, and it's really, it's, it's a trip of a lifetime. Uh, you're referencing, I'm assuming, last week's broadcast because we mentioned uh, Mount Precipice because we had a question that came in from there. Uh, when uh, Jesus was on uh, the Mount of Precipice, uh, there's only one place in Nazareth, and that's why I called it a Class A spot, where what the people did out of anger, uh, they, they walked them up a hill about a mile, but anger will do all kinds of things. It will drive people to all kinds of efforts in order to accomplish the evil that they want to do. And so there's one place in Nazareth where they could have thrown Jesus off and killed him. And you go to that very spot. That's a class A spot. Just the geography itself eliminates other places. There, there's a lot of class A spots that we will go to. Uh, we're, we're planning to at least go to the outskirts of Nain on that particular day, day three. We're going to Caesarea, Mount Carmel, um, Mount Tabor, Tel Megiddo, Nazareth, uh, Cana, so forth. A lot of things in that particular day. I don't know if we'll actually drive into Nain that day or just look at it from the outside, but Nain was the little village in which Jesus raised a young boy who was dead, and if you remember, they were in funeral procession. Do we know that's Nain? Absolutely. Now, do we know um, if it if the funeral procession was here or over there? No, nobody knows. Nobody can say that. But we know, oh, this is Nain. Uh, we'll go, for instance, to Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel or Mount Carmel, a lot of people pronounce it. That's where, of course, Elijah had the confrontation with uh, the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah. Uh, is that a class A spot? Yeah, it happened right there. Now, um, was the altar set up here or here? Uh, you know, well, there's about a 50-yard uh, area on the top, but it happened like somewhere right in here. We're, we're, we're there. We're on Mount Carmel, and uh, that's significant. Uh, the Mount of Beatitudes, uh, that's a Class A spot. Uh, that's a place where Jesus did the Sermon on the Mount. And interestingly, there was a university in Israel where they went around the Sea of Galilee, and they... Um, basically tested the ability of a human voice to speak from various spots. And they said what is called the Mount of Beatitudes today is the single best projectionary spot for a human voice to be carried. Um, so Caesarea Philippi, uh, that he was in the villages of Caesarea Philippi. So, again, there's a number of little villages that were strung together in there. Now, there is a place, a shrine, uh, in Caesarea Philippi amongst the villages where uh, they had various deities that were worshipped. And what's so fascinating when you go there is that a lot of the actual imprints and cuts into the side of the hill 
where they had these various deities that were acknowledged are still there. Uh, they've survived all these times. So it was significant for Jesus in this town where you had a lot of pagan worship to say, who do men say that I am? Uh, tell Dan, that's a class A spot. Uh, that's the place, remember, we speak of from Dan to Beersheba. And Dan is a place of great biblical significance. If you remember, it was the uh, tribe of Dan that got involved in idolatrous worship. And for that reason, out of the 12 tribes of Israel that we've been discussing in uh, the book of Revelation, uh, the 144,000 from the 12 tribes in Revelation 7, Dan is excluded. And Joseph's two sons become basically two tribes. Uh, the Golan Heights, that's just a, that's just a spot of uh, military significance. Uh, we're going to go to Chorazin. It's one of three cities that Jesus said, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's a class A spot. Uh, we'll go to a place called Cursa. Remember the Gardarene demoniacs. Those were... Uh, two men, uh, one account, uh, Matthew mentions just one. The other account, Luke mentions two. There were two. They never contradict. They only complement. And there's a reason for that, which I'll not go into right now. It's a sermon in itself. But that's a, a really like a class A spot. Now, by class A, I mean you go there and you can say, oh, yeah, there's the tombs that people were actually buried in. Oh, yeah, this is the only place in the Sea of Galilee where you have an unbroken hill where the 2,000 hogs could be run right down into the water. Uh, we'll go on a boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. That's obviously a class A spot. You're on the Sea of Galilee. We'll go to Magdala, the place where Mary of Magdala, or Mary Magdalene, we often refer to her, her home. Uh, that's a relatively new spot that was uncovered in the 1980s. They knew approximately where it was. Now we'll go to a place called Tabga. Now here's one of the challenges when you go to a place like Tabga. When you go there, uh, the Roman Catholics uh, say two things happened here. Uh, what happened here was this was a place where Jesus fed the 5,000, or really 20,000, 5,000 men, excluding women and children, so maybe fifteen to 20,000, conservatively speaking, more like twenty. Um, and they also say, well, this is the spot where uh, Jesus uh, gave, they would say, Peter, making him preeminent over all the other disciples. You know, do you love me? Do you love me? The John 21 experience. Now, he wasn't made preeminent over the other disciples, but he was restored publicly in front of those disciples that were present that day. But did that happen there? Yes, absolutely. No question. And I explain why and some of the geographical signs and hints. And it, <laughs> but did the feeding of the 5,000 take place there? Absolutely not. We know that definitively. Because the feeding of the 5,000, they went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And then they come back to these spots. And so John says they came back to Bethsaida. Yet the miracle took place in Bethsaida. Well, you discover that there's two Bethsaidas, and John notes that. There's the Bethsaida on the other side of the sea, House of Figs, so forth, House of Mercy, House of Fish. Um, and then there's the Bethsaida on the Capernaum side of the lake, two Bethsaidas, not unusual. 
to have a number of places. There's uh, two Bethlehems in Israel and so forth. Um, so we do know what did take place at Tabgah, that certainly that was the place where the disciples were initially challenged to leave their nets and to follow Christ. And it comes all the way around at the end of Christ's ministry and one of his resurrection appearances. Capernaum, yeah, like you'll go to the very synagogue. Now, when you go to that synagogue, the actual physical synagogue, the first century floor you can still see. Um, A fourth century floor is different. So are you walking where Jesus walked? Well, you're in the spot, but are you on the same stones? No, not in that particular place. Um, But it's the place, the synagogue, where Jesus cast out a demon. And of course, Capernaum, when you think of the life of Christ, you should think primarily of four places, Bethlehem, where he's born, Nazareth, where he is raised, Capernaum, which becomes the headquarters, and it's called the home of Jesus in one of the Gospels, because for three years, that's his home after he's rejected in Nazareth, in Jerusalem, of course, where he's crucified and raised from the dead. So Capernaum is a class A spot. Bethshean, that has great significance. It's an Old Testament spot that we will uh, visit. It's the place, of course, where Saul and his sons were hung. Uh, Gideon Springs, yep, Class A. Um, so we're going to go to a lot of places where, yeah, it happened right here or it happened in around here. Mount of Olives, yeah. Uh, there's only one Mount of Olives in all of Israel, and it's right across from the Temple Mount. Temple Mount, yeah. That Like, you look, if you're on the Mount of Olives and you look across the Kidron Valley, you see the very place where God's first and second temple once were, and where a third temple will be built. When you look at the eastern gate, you're looking at a Muslim gate, but you're looking at the location of the original eastern gate that is right underneath it that has actually been found. Um, Garden of Gethsemane uh, and uh, Golgotha, yeah, those are all class A spots. Now, did Jesus... um, initially meet them and arrested in this spot, and then uh, he he prayed over in this spot. Well, there's actually a rock there. There's a church, Roman church, built over it, and uh, they um, say that this is the very rock Jesus prayed on. I don't know. Maybe they're right, but I know where the Garden of Gethsemane is because the Bible tells me where it is, and amazingly, it's still somewhat of a preserved place. Uh, you'll go to the pavement where Jesus actually stood, and he stood before Pilate, and it's the place where etched in the very stones there, some of the soldiers uh, played a game when they would crucify people. Uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, is that a class A spot? No, that's a, like a nothing spot. Um, I, it's not even, it definitely, it would class C, it didn't happen here. Now, the Roman Catholics say, here's where Jesus was crucified, this is the spot he was laid on, and uh, over here is the, the tomb where he was raised from the dead, and they have all these spots all under one roof. Well, Helena, the mother of uh, the Roman Emperor Constantine, decided that that's where it took place, but it didn't take place there. It's not on Mount Moriah. Um, Abraham offered his son on Mount Moriah, on the mountains of Moriah, 
uh, David, when there is a plague that has come on Israel, buys a piece of property from Aruna, and he offers a sacrifice on Mount Moriah, which the Bible tells us is the place that Solomon built the first temple. It's the place where the second temple was rebuilt, and it is the place where the third temple will be rebuilt, and it's on the mountains of Moriah that the Lord Jesus died. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre doesn't meet that, not to mention their so-called tomb doesn't meet the qualifications. So when we go to Golgotha, the place of the skull, which is an amazing place because you can still, the first time I went there was in 1989, and the imprint is not as clear, and it's not even as clear in 1989 from pictures that were taken at 1900. But we'll show people like pictures. Here's what it looked like in 1900 because of erosion and time. But you can still make out the face of the skull. And then a short distance away, a garden owned by a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, was the tomb in which Jesus was laid. And, of course, for centuries, that whole section was silted over in sand. And in the late 1800s, someone was digging around. They said, oh, there's something here. And they kept digging, and they dug down feet and feet and feet. And that's the thing with time is things get built on top of it. But but those are class A spots. And when we go to that area, I give you 15 reasons why it happened there right out of the Scripture itself. So uh, that's just to whet someone's appetite. I mean, there's just tons of places. We'll go to the Southern Steps, the Herodian Street. The Herodian Street, remember when Jesus said not one stone will stand upon another? Um, and indeed, not one stone stood upon another, and the very temple stones that were thrown off the top of the Temple Mount, you will see them. You'll even see the trumpeter stone that has a uh, ancient etching in it that goes back um, before the time of Christ to the time of the Second Temple period, where the trumpeter would stand and blow the temple and call, uh, blow the trumpet and call people to worship. You go to Hezekiah's tunnel. There's a tunnel, a water tunnel that the Bible mentions, and you'll go and you can walk through that if you want. You can walk through if you don't want to get wet. You can go through. We run a simultaneous tour. Some people don't want to get wet. Some maybe feel a little claustrophobic, um, and they don't want to walk through. It's perfectly safe, but if someone's claustrophobic, they're claustrophobic, and they go through Warren Shaft while people are going through Hezekiah's Tunnel. Or some people have come more than once to Israel, and they say, well, last time I went through Hezekiah's Tunnel, this time I want to go to Warren Schaff. And each time we go, we go to places that we haven't been to before. But um, Warren Schaff is a place where David uh, conquered the city from the Jebusites, where um, he was able to um, uh, victoriously reign over them. So just a ton of stuff that we'll go to. We'll go to the place where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, pretty significant in, in human history. Um, it, it's really a wonderful trip. And if that interests you, and again, there, I, I will tell people, I'll say, well, this didn't really happen here that, you know, but why, why do I even go to the church of the Holy Sepulchre? Well, one, it's a beautiful illustration of something that didn't happen, but it's also a, it's also a, almost a painful illustration of, of sheer idolatry. And of course the prophet Zechariah mentions that there will be idolatry in the city of Jerusalem that during the tribulation period, the Jews are going to root out. And I'm sure they'll either burn or blow up or shut down the church of the Holy Sepulchre 
because it's class A Roman Catholic idolatry. It's very, very sad. You know, for instance, uh, there's a place where supposedly um, Jesus was laying, and people empty out their purses. They put rosary beads, cloths, and everything, and they rub it on this stone, a piece of marble that's not even indigenous to Israel. And uh, they say, yeah, this is, this is where Jesus was laying. And, um, but it didn't happen there. But it's a, it's a classic picture of what God in his word says not to do. Uh, we'll baptize people in the Jordan River. There's two places for the baptism. For a long time, there was one section on the Jordan that people used, uh, if you've been to Israel, but it's only been in the last maybe 10 years, that Kasser el Yahud, as it's called, uh, is was open because you had to come to an agreement with uh, the Jordanian government, and they worked with the Israelis. They get along those two countries pretty well, and uh, we can actually do a baptism in the in the very area where John the Baptist baptized the Lord Jesus, and it was the same area that, of course, the children of Israel uh, crossed the Jordan River uh, in, in that ancient day. So, just it's a it's a it's a trip that is just packed with opportunity, with visuals, and really it takes about two or three times going to Israel where it all begins to sink in. But even if you go just once, it's not that you uh, can't read and understand the Bible without going to Israel. You can. But to have visuals and a a geographical feel, like when you know, for instance, that uh, Joseph and Mary took the Lord Jesus from Bethlehem to the temple in Jerusalem, you discover, oh, that's a five-mile walk. That's that's helpful to know. Uh, and you see where they went from point A to point B. That's that's really, really helpful to know. Anyway, great question, long answer, um, maybe a little bit of a commercial uh, on going to Israel. Uh, but if you'd like to come, we'd love to have you. You can go to the website, download the brochure, and you can register online. if you have a question for today's Bible line. And the listener just called in and would like to know, in 1 Samuel, when Saul consults uh, the witch at Endor, the medium, the medium calls up Samuel. Yes. Did the Lord allow it because it says the wicked can't call up the righteous? Well, it's a good question. Um, Yeah, God certainly allowed it, and the witch was absolutely, like, shocked. Because she didn't, uh, she didn't think this was going to happen. Obviously, but it happened, and God brought Samuel up from what we would call today righteous Hades. Remember, there were two sections to Sheol. There was righteous Sheol and unrighteous Sheol. Sheol is a Hebrew word for the word Hades. Uh, since righteous Sheol no longer exists because Christ emptied it out as an ascension to heaven. Ephesians 4, only unrighteous Sheol or unrighteous Hades. So usually when we use the term Hades today and in the New Testament, it's very negative. It's a synonym for hell. Now, when a man dies and he's lost today, he goes to unrighteous Hades. He does not um, uh, go to the lake of fire because if you remember when we come to the end of um, the Revelation, the 20th chapter, we read that Hades was cast into the lake of fire. So it continues to exist, but it continues to exist in a different place. It's the eternal, final 
resting place of all lost people. So right now, when a man who is lost dies, he goes to Hades. He is resurrected at the great white throne judgment. And at the great white throne judgment, God gives a final evaluation in terms of uh, where this particular individual is in terms of his influence for evil. Why does God wait until the end? Why doesn't God just um, right now um, judge a person? Because some of the works that you do in this life have an effect that go on sometimes for a long, long time. Uh, Hugh Hefner, who's now dead, uh, you know, he started an organization. I don't know what the official name, people just called it Playboy. Um, But nonetheless, um, after his death, his wickedness and his influence continues. And so uh, he affected a lot of people with evil for a long time. Hitler, after he died, his evil continued. And there are people today who still ascribe to some of the Nazi viewpoints that that wicked man held to. And so it's not until the very end of time when God gathers all these lost people together and he brings them to the final judgment. So the Andor question comes up often. Uh, I say often every once in a while in the Bible line, but it's a good question. But Samuel literally came up out of the dead. And um, th- th- this uh, uh, necromancer of sorts was an utter shock uh, that it actually happened and that that was Samuel. So. Very good. Well, a listener um, from North Ridgeville, Ohio, Rosie, writes, Please give your understanding of Romans 8.30. I heard someone on the radio preach that it's an example of Calvinism. Well, you know, everything that John Calvin said was not necessarily wrong. So when we use the term Calvinism, it's a broad subject. But people use it almost as a nickname, as a code word today for his view on sovereign election, which uh, the Bible teaches election. The question is, how does the Bible teach election? You can't say that you're a biblical Christian and not believe in the doctrine of election. Uh, God elected us. He chose us. It's the verb that we get our word elected for. He chose us before the foundations of the world. The question is not did God choose us, but on what basis did he choose us? And so the typical Calvinists today in reference to their doctrine of salvation, but understand Calvinism has a wide influence in in all kinds of biblical doctrines. Uh, It really, in many ways, is kind of a spinoff from Roman Catholicism, just uh, dunked in the Bible a little bit more. But there's a lot of error that is in Calvinistic theology that's in Roman theology. For instance, Roman Catholics baptize infants. John Calvin baptized infants. Was that biblical? No, it's just wrong. Look, someone's right, someone's wrong. You can't both be right where infant baptism is correct and post-conversion baptism is correct. But there's not one verse in the whole Bible where infant baptism is ever explicitly taught. You have to infer into the Scripture. There are certainly five household passages in the New Testament, but in four out of the five household passages, it says that everyone that was baptized received the Lord or believed. And I think it's safe to assume the same is true in the fifth where it's not mentioned because that's consistent with the command of Christ, believe and then be baptized, Mark 16. Go therefore and make disciples, converts of all peoples, 
baptizing them. First they're saved, then they're baptized, and then they're instructed. And that's the model all the way through the book of Acts. And so when you think of Calvinism, though, again, it affects every realm of theology, their eschatology, their doctrine of the last times or end times is um, affected because it's basically a Roman Catholic view that God's done with the Jewish people. And so they propose what's called replacement theology today. And there's some good people who hold it. Uh, They're wrong in this area. You know, John Piper is a good guy. He preaches the gospel. I'm grateful. But is he wrong in his view of replacement theology? Absolutely. It's just heresy. I mean, it's, it's not a damnable heresy, but it's, it's gross error. It's, it's terrible. And it's replacement theology that goes back to Augustine that has fed anti-Semitism. Now, that's not their intent. John Piper's a great guy, and he's not anti-Semitic, I'm assuming, in the least bit. But that's what that theology ends up uh, <laughs> inferencing. So when we come to uh, Romans chapter 8, and we know contextually here, verse 28, and this is a verse that most Christians know, a lot have it memorized. It's certainly one that we should memorize. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, again, this is a promise that God gives not just to anyone, but to his people. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. He's describing a believer, and then he further explains that to those who are called. Actually, it looks like a verb in most English translations, but it's actually a noun. Uh, The King James is actually a little more literal here, but it captures it a little bit better. To those who are the called, he's referring to a specific group of people that make up the called. And for this specific group of people, God is working all things together for good. In what sense? Well, they're called the called according to his purpose. Well, what's God's purpose? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he, his son, would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. So he uses the five words in an unbroken chain that really, among other things, describes our uh, security in Jesus Christ. All that are predestined are called. All that are called are justified. All that are justified are glorified. And this is all based on a fifth word called foreknowledge, those whom he foreknew. The foreknowledge of God is really the crux of the issue. What does he mean by foreknowledge? The Calvinists would say that by foreknowledge, God in eternity past lovingly chose some people, which they would say was his prerogative because none deserve to go to heaven. And that's true. None of us deserve to go to heaven. If God did nothing, never sent his son and sent the whole human race to hell, that's what we deserve because we chose in and with Adam to rebel against God. So you can't say, well, look, it's Adam's fault. That's why I got to sin nature. No, when Adam sinned, all sin. But with that said, it's foreknowledge. And I would say that foreknowledge is not God in eternity past just saying, well, I think I'll take him and I'll let him go. And some would teach some classes of Calvinism. There's various degrees. 
with teaching double predestination that God actually created some people, made them specifically for, for hell and others for heaven. But I take it that foreknowledge, prognoskis, is the verb. Um, it just means prior knowledge, and there are many examples of that in Scripture. For instance, I just turned over to First Peter 1, and it says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, da 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 da, da uh, he chose us. So uh, those who reside as aliens who are chosen, how are we chosen? According to the foreknowledge of God. The Calvinists would say, well, that just means God uh, choosing you in advance because if he didn't choose you, all would go to hell. Well, again, that makes man more of a robot than making a willful decision. You say, well, Pastor Carl, are there illustrations of foreknowledge where explicitly, clearly, it just means God choosing on the basis of his prior knowledge? And I think that's what's in view here. In other words, God chose us before the foundations of the world. On what basis? On his prior knowledge. And it's on his prior knowledge, God knowing ahead of time how you would respond to the work of a sovereign God. Uh, Based on that knowledge, God could write our names in the Lamb's Book of Life ever before we were created. For instance, in Acts 26, verse 5, let me just turn over there. Uh, Paul is giving a defense before Agrippa. By the way, one of the things, going back to the Israel trip, we go to uh, there's two Caesareas, or Caesarea Philippi, and then there's Caesarea by the sea. Caesarea by the sea is a class A spot. Uh, a lot happened in that place. That was the place where Philip and his seven daughters, who are prophetesses, lived. That's the place where Paul logged some time under house arrest there uh, before he faced Festus and Felix and Agrippa. Um, so it's a very, very important place. That's the place where uh, Cornelius, or Cornelius, I like to pronounce it, the Brits, that um, that we find this man who is responding to what he knows, but he doesn't yet know the gospel. And so God sends an angel to him in that particular city and has him uh, and has Peter get a vision in another place, and he brings the two together. Peter's in Joppa. That's another place we go to. Uh, Joppa is an important spot because that was a place where uh, Jonah uh, took off in his boat in the wrong direction. That was a place where uh, Peter uh, had uh, an encounter in the house of the tanner with God through this vision. And then God brings him over to this place called Caesarea, not that far away. And the two have this encounter and he hears the gospel and he's saved. So it's in Caesarea. So then all Jews... Paul is speaking, know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known, foreknown. Now, some could render it foreknown. In either case, it's prognosco. It's um, the same verb that's used in Romans chapter 8. Since they have known or they had prior knowledge about me. You could paraphrase it for a long time. Paul is just giving his testimony. He says, look, people knew what I was like before I got saved. This is no mystery. That's prior knowledge. You are chosen according to the prior knowledge. Pro means pre. Gnosis means knowledge. And so we speak of Gnostics. 
And so it's prior knowledge or foreknowledge, beforehand knowledge. It's on that basis that God chose us. So I would say this in reference to your question on Romans chapter 8. Was John Calvin correct in the doctrine of eternal security? Absolutely. Just like he was correct in the uh, the death of Christ, at least that Christ died in our place. Now, um, some say who are Calvinists today that Jesus didn't die for everybody, but just a select few. John Calvin didn't teach that. Some of his followers did. And so there are some today who preach a limited or a particular atonement that you can look at anyone in the eye and say, Jesus died for you. He loves you. No, if you listen carefully to the hyper-Calvinist, he'll say, Jesus died for all those who will repent and believe. Will you repent and believe? So they're really not saying, I know for a fact that Christ died for you in particular. No, just for those who will repent and believe, because those who will repent and believe make up this group called the called, and God knew in advance. So again, they manipulate words, they do all kinds of word games, but was Calvin correct on his affirmation of eternal security? Absolutely. And so what I find interesting is that those whom he predestined. And by the way, people hear the word predestined and they generally associate that with God choosing some to go to heaven and some to go to hell. That's not the way the word is even used in the New Testament. The way the word is used in the New Testament is it speaks of a goal. And what did God predestined us for? Well, he predestined us as Ephesians affirms to become conformed to the image of his son. Uh, As uh, this passage uh, affirms. He predestined us to become conformed to the image of his son, Romans eight twenty nine and Ephesians 1, that we might be holy. So God, when he saves you, it's to make you like Christ. But notice, predestined is in a past tense, called is in a past tense, justified is in a past tense, and glorified is in a past tense. In other words, every single one, based on the foreknowledge of God, who are, <coughs> uh, who are uh, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. Uh, it, it's an unbroken chain. In fact, obviously, I'm not glorified right now. I'm still in a fallen natural body, but in the mind and heart of God, because one happened, the other is going to happen because we cannot lose our salvation. Very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and uh, the last call we just received a few minutes ago is from a mom who has a real dilemma. She has a daughter who is not a Christian and who's fully engulfed in a sinful lifestyle. This mom says that her daughter is named as her heir and executive, executrix of the estate, but the mom's afraid that the money she leaves her daughter will be used to continue her sinful, godless lifestyle. Do you have any advice for this mom? Well, it's a, it's a good question. And you need to have a will where things are spelled out in terms of all of your assets. Now, I'll tell you the extreme. I've had people come to me who uh, I think of one lady in particular. She said, I'm leaving my children nothing. They visited me never. They um, didn't care about me. Uh, They're both lost. I'm not going to leave them anything. Of course, as she aged and she got to the point where she was officially demented. She had dementia. Her children stepped in, took over power of attorney, uh, took over against her wishes what she wanted to do and ramrodded the whole thing through, and they got what they wanted. This is why a will 
that is specific is important. But I told her there in my office 25 years ago, I said, what you're doing is wrong. I said, to leave your children out of the will is potentially to embitter them. It's to basically say, look, um, I don't care about you. I don't love you. How could a mother really do that to her children? How could a mother just say, I, I reject you? You don't, now, obviously, I'm not saying that's true of this caller, but I'm using an extreme example. And I said, and all you're going to do is draw them, draw, drive them further away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's not a wise decision to make. So if you have resources, you should leave them. But let's, again, sometimes if you exaggerate something, you can step back and you can see the wisdom of it. Let's just say for the sake of argument that uh, you have a child who's a drug addict and you want to leave that child some kind of inheritance to express your unconditional love for that child, but you know that if they just all of a sudden get $20,000 cash in the bank after you die, that they're going to go through it, they're, they're going to abuse their bodies or whatever, then you put it in a trust. Um, I have a family member who I am the trustee over an inheritance. Uh, my mother has, my mother's still alive, um, she was born in 1927, so she's an old woman. Um, but in her wisdom, uh, she knows that if this particular individual just received this money, it's not that they're involved in evil. They would just like blow it, waste it. And her intent was that they be provided for. And I said, well, mom, put it in a trust. And I said, you can hire an attorney to do it or, you can, or I'll do it for free because I love my brother. And so I manage his trust and even some of his inheritance that he's already received. And so I cut him a check and, and I say, it has to be used for this. And, uh, he has to show me the receipts and email me things. And, and that's important because she knows that it would just be wasted and spent needlessly. So you've got some options there. You can set up a trust where you can say, well, here, you know, I want to leave you money, daughter, so that your son can go to college. And so this is money I'm leaving for you so that you out of your own pocket, say, don't have to underwrite his going to the university, which is extremely expensive in our day. But we, we I, I want to make sure that um, because you love your son so much, it's going to be used for that. So there's a lot of creative things, what I'm saying you can do where the money is not spent on evil things, uh, but there's a trust that's usually involved in those kinds of things. Very good. I think we've got time for one more quick question. My daughter was reading Matthew this evening, this next uh, listener writes, and she asked me to explain Matthew 27, 45 to 56, specifically about the resurrection of the saints. I don't want to misinterpret this, but could you please assist us in understanding? Well, it's a, this is, by the way, a good reason to have a literal translation of the Bible uh, because like the uh, ESV and the RSV and the HTSB and the Net Bible and the NES get it right in terms of how they render this. The NIV, because they paraphrase a lot, you might get really confused. So if you're reading it out of the NIV, just lay that aside because, again, they had two goals like the King James, like the New American Standard readability and literalness, but they put readability over literalness to make it smoother. And in the process of doing that, they lost the specifics that are really rendered here. 
So, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tomb after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. So this is in keeping with one of the uh, feasts. There are some uh, fall feasts and some spring feasts. The spring feasts were fulfilled uh, at the second, com- uh, the first coming of Christ. The fall feasts will be fulfilled after the church is raptured in events leading up to the second coming. And so one of the feasts in the spring was the Feast of First Fruits. So it's not by accident that, for instance, Jesus dies on Passover. I mean, he, that's the day he dies. He dies on Passover in fulfillment of prophecy, not by accident, because the Passover lamb was symbolic of the coming lamb. He's buried in the tomb on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which kicks off a, a 50-day time period of time. And on the Feast of First Fruits, that Sunday, Resurrection Sunday as we call it, he's risen from the dead. And again, when you celebrated First, first Fruits, you would bring a, a single stalk, so to speak, and it would be dedicated in the temple by the priest out of gratitude as first fruits and also a handful of grain. And it was symbolic of a coming harvest. And so when Jesus dies, buried, and raised, the first one to come out of the tomb is the Lord Jesus. He is the first fruits of the dead. He's the first one ever to come out of the grave in a resurrection body. Now, there are some people who are raised to life, like Lazarus, like um, uh, an individual that Elijah and Elisha raised on two different occasions. But that's different from Jesus who comes out in a resurrection body. And in keeping with first fruits, then there's a handful of Old Testament saints who come out after him. The veil's torn top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks were split. The tombs were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after, the NIV misses that in their paraphrasing, he count, they come out after his resurrection and they enter the city. Very critical because it's a uh, prophecy being fulfilled. Prophecies were fulfilled by direct prophecies or types or illustrations. This was a a type. There wasn't a, you know, God just didn't pick out of the air these feasts, and I want you to celebrate these feasts as Jewish people. There was a reason for each feast, because they were giving a foreshadowing of what the Messiah was going to accomplish. Well, we're out of time. A lot of questions we didn't get to, but God willing, there'll be another Tuesday, and we'll have that opportunity. Thanks for joining us. Again, if you're interested in going to Israel, go to searchthescriptures.org. All one word, searchthescriptures.org, and you can click on the brochure, download it. We're going to have another informational meeting coming up in uh, December, or maybe late November, and we'll keep you aware of that. Thanks for joining us today. Have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ.